Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man whose name is an anagram of Karen Carpenter. It's Carl on Carpenter. Carl, how are you doing? Great, how are you doing? Yeah, good. I think maybe making references to the Carpenters is probably pitched a little bit over the head of most of my listeners. I'm sure they weren't listening to pop music in the 1960s and 70s, but you must have heard of the Carpenters given that you share a name with them. Actually, my, one of my mom's favorite groups, she has a bunch of their records on vinyl. So I grew up alongside the Carpenters in the living room and as well living with the, the surnames. <laughs> Carl is a tactical and video analyst at Statsbomb and also works with Bath City FC in the National League South as a performance analyst. And today we're going to be talking all about the role that tactical ideas can play in the role of a performance analyst. So we'll be dipping into Carl's copious experience as an analyst working with clubs to find out more. But before we do that, just a reminder as ever that one of the best ways for me to build my audience is by word of mouth. So if you do like this podcast, please do recommend it to friends who you think would enjoy it. Anyway, that's all out of the way. Time to get talking about performance analysis. And Carl, I think to begin with, it's probably just good to nail down the term performance analysis so that we're all on the same page. So what is it that you mean by performance analysis? Yeah, so essentially performance analysis is it's kind of a sub-discipline. It falls under a lot of hats, but essentially what it does is it blends together qualitative analysis and quantitative analysis together to kind of assess a team's strengths, weaknesses, etc. So you can do it and approach it from a lot of different starting points. Obviously, the, the qualitative is more of the data kind of side approach of things, looking at advanced metrics to kind of see where your team is good, where your team is deficient. And then there's the more quantitative side, which is where I find my kind of my niche and my strength is kind of looking at it from a more tactical on the pitch coaching sort of blend. So the performance analyst essentially blends those two things together and kind of gets a full picture. It can be also outside of the collective kind of team-based way of looking at it. You can look at it individually. So looking at how players uh, interact with each other. And I think the best place to begin following that then is to talk to you a little bit about how you got into performance analysis yourself. So how did you make that step into the industry? Yeah. So after I stopped playing, I was a goalkeeper. So I got into goalkeeper coaching. I was doing goalkeeper coaching at Academy in the US for about two years. And I'd always been interested in the video analysis side of things, even when I was playing for the college team in the US. Basically, what I did was outside of the coaching staff, I was actually the one who was doing all the video clipping and video analysis work for the team, just because it's something I kind of enjoyed doing. My dad is actually also, he is a cameraman as well. So I think that kind of goes hand in hand, that interest level there. After I was doing coaching, I made friends with AJ Barnold, who's the current women's national team analyst in the US. And he was a performance analyst at the time at the University of Virginia. We kind of had a relationship. We worked some camps together, worked some working at a, at a club together briefly. And essentially when he was getting the role with the US women's national team, he recommended me for the coaching staff at the University of Virginia. I guess I impressed them enough that, I, that basically the first week they said, here's a computer, here's sports code, here's what all these metrics and kind of things means and learn. So basically a week before I started, I basically learned on the fly everything I kind of needed to do to jump in uh, week one. So in terms of what that process looks like, we've said already that you've been working with Bath City FC since you came to mm -hmm. the UK. So what does your performance analysis workflow look like for them? Generally, because it's obviously part-time and, and every single employee at Bath City is, apart from the manager, is on a volunteer basis. I usually have about three days out of the week where I kind of dedicate my time. And it's generally with Bath City due to the limitations, obviously, because they only train about two times a week and then they have a match day. I usually focus on pre- and post-game analysis. We do actually have access because we have a partnership that I've helped kind of create through uh, StatsBomb where we actually we are given National League South data. So we have a huge leg up on there. But most of my kind of stuff is providing on the Monday or right after a match week on a Saturday, usually providing the coaching staff with a post-game data report, kind of looking at key areas that we've found through our KPIs that we've selected, and as well, linking that all to video to kind of see what that manifested like on the pitch. Then generally, we have training on the Tuesday. I'll provide them with the pre-match kind of report for the upcoming opponent on the Saturday. And the same kind of blend, using data and video to create context. And as alongside of that, we also have individualized reports for each player, basically, where it's, it's video clips that they can just look on at a drop of a hat, and as well, their individual data packet. You've already mentioned that the role of a performance analyst is 
blending together video and data, quantitative and qualitative, as you said. So let's just talk about them quickly separately. So firstly, video. Video mm-hmm. is fundamental to what you do. You're basically using video to assess the collective and individual aspects of a game, right? So what does that look like? With the video element, my kind of starting point is always, and this is, is always the first kind of conversation you have when you start working with the coaching staff, is because video is always going to be the most time-consuming kind of aspect of a performance analyst workflow, just because you simply you have to watch the match. Even if you watch it on, you know, some people watch it on like triple speed, double speed. It's the most time-consuming to actually do. So my kind of my first conversation and my first starting point is what actually matters to us. For example, if I was working for the recently departed Sean Dyche, I wouldn't really focus so much on how can we press the opposition and what they do under pressure. So understanding that kind of game model aspect cuts down a lot on the work time. So you can, when you're cutting clips and you're looking at clips, you can focus on what's really relevant and, to, and save time there. From the actual workflow perspective, I usually watch four to five matches of the previous opposition's games to kind of get a feel and create clips of that. And as well, if, if it's applicable, I also look at how the opposition team have actually played against teams which play in a similar style to us. So we're actually, as well, it kind of helps cut out the relevant time there. So once those clips are made, I kind of organize them into kind of a database or just an online server that the coaching staff can can look at at their leisure. When I prepare video for a staff, it's usually about 15 minutes or 20 minutes of video, focusing obviously on the various phases of play. And then usually the final kind of report that we, we show pre-match for the players is cut down to about maybe about half that, just so they're not completely... Paralysis by analysis is often a video thing. And a lot of times, if you watch a center back playing to the other center back 15 times of build up, it's, it's just not really relevant. Do you find that with video, coaches are a lot more amenable to it because it's sort of obvious that you're doing something useful there rather than the data side of things? Yeah, I think the video side is obviously coaches, it's getting better in terms of coaching be understanding more advanced metrics. But if you say like, hey, you know, their right back is really bad under pressure and you show them a number, it's not as relevant as if you actually show them their right back coughing up the ball of 14 times in a row. Mm. And as well, it's it's also the kind of thing and why I'm so, uh, if, if anyone follows me on social media, I always just kind of push the whole video analysis side of things is because it's the most applicable for actually training insights. It's easier to kind of make a one-to-one ratio of working on it in training and the actual performance side of things if you can relate it as closely to on-the-pitch action. So if you're looking at, just to use another example of pressing, if you're looking at a team's pressing examples and you're you're trying to force them outside, showing them clips prior to training of you doing well or poorly in some cases of them forcing pressure into wide areas, it gets players into that kind of mindset and it's easier for them to visualize why they're actually doing something in training through video. I always, in my kind of thing is data always has to provide the context. Some people start with the data and that's, and that's obviously I, data is hugely important. I work for a company called StatsBomb, so it's it kind of goes hand in hand there, but I think data is always the kind of my secondary and my workflow, my kind of thing I start with. And in terms of the video itself, then you do clipping tape and logging what's going on. So could you talk us through the tagging process of the stuff that you're doing? With Bath City, usually most of the data that I'm collecting during a match is kind of a, a hybrid between quantitative and qualitative. We kind of create bespoke metrics that I can uh, code and tag live. So like second balls isn't necessarily one that is going to be like my idea of a second ball might be different than your second ball. But what I am doing is creating tags. I use sports code and other video analysis tools are available to kind of create metrics. And I, I have like hotkeys basically when I'm coding. So it creates data that way through video clips, and they're all linked to video, which is really useful. So I do create kind of things when I go on at halftime and I speak to the staff, I'm basically able to give them some kind of objectivity in terms of what's going on on the pitch. And then obviously right after the game, you're you're always given the data when it's coded and, and all done and actually the professional level of kind of statistical guys who do all the coding for us and data, I'm given that pretty much right after post-match. So that's usually where the more intense sort of qualitative side of things go on. But during a match, obviously when I'm coding those clips and I'm creating some sort of objectivity through data, it still has a lot of use. I guess that will furnish you with your own sort of database that you can look back on as the season goes on. So are you constantly referring back to that body of information as you go through the season? Yeah, definitely. I mean, sample size is always hugely important for just kind of anything. So uh, databasing all your your video 
for one, and then as well, your data and kind of see how trends grow over time is definitely the most important thing for me. If you take, you know, one game sample size, like a common metric is XG. If you look at your XG and you created 0.65 and the opposition were triple that or double that, you could, if you just look at it, then that one kind of isolated case, you could come to a lot of conclusions, which are not necessarily the same thing. And that's for all metrics and video, obviously, as well. If you look back at it and say, well, okay, that was an outlier for our expected goals or uh, why did we press so low this match? And you can look at a lot of the context and see that databasing and creating trends that way is, is hugely important. How much do you think actually shows itself up through the data first rather than the eye test stuff that you're doing? I think there are certain occasions where that does happen. I think a lot of things that we actually you see in the data will actually be something that you've, if you're watching the games intently, will come to be like, oh, well, that's something that make, made sense to me. But a lot of times it's, I use the data in that sense. And more times it kind of confirms my priors in terms of what I'm doing. Coaches and myself are, you know, always watching the game or try to watch the game in such high detail that we're actually picking up on a lot of things that most people who kind of watch it as fans and stuff aren't. But like a lot of times, uh, it was a study done a number of years ago at a, at a university. And it was, they asked coaches about certain questions about what happened in a match. And it was something about 40% of, all events were actually remembered correctly 100% of the time. So like accuracy in terms of the level of detail was very, very up and down. So a lot of times you might see it in a match and be like, oh, our, our pressing was awful in that game. And then you look at it, it was like, oh, okay, it wasn't that so bad. So data is a kind of a good way to kind of change your minds and kind of give you some kind of context of things or just completely reaffirm what you've, you've already believed. So we've been talking a lot about the work that you've been doing with Bath City FC, but obviously your full-time job is working with Statsbomb, who are a football data company. You talked to us before about how you're using the data almost as a secondary measure for the work that you're doing with Bath City, but obviously at Statsbomb that relationship is reversed, right? So you've been brought in to be able to add tactical insight to a team of largely data scientists and analysts. So could you talk to us about the difference between your roles in that respect? The role at StatsFarm is a lot of fun because I basically kind of use my experiences of performance analysis and kind of help us create better data and help our clients use our data in more advanced and superior ways. So my official title, as you said, is tactical and video analysts. Usually you say people wear various different hats. I probably wear about 40 different hats at StatsBomb and it's I wouldn't have it any other way. A lot of it is client facing. So working with clients to better understand how they can look at our data and use it in a context which the coaching staff will understand or they can apply it to day-to-day training, how they can use our data to create, like we've been talking about, kind of better links to video through our XMLs. And just a lot of different ways that basically I kind of provide the link between the people who are actually out in the field working at professional clubs and how we can better serve analysts working at clubs from our side of things. So like looking at it and saying, well, this is great that we're collecting this sort of data, but we should possibly work on trying to better explain these kind of metrics so analysts can use it in a better way. So I'm kind of like the go-to man for a lot of our, our client-facing clubs to kind of like make sure that our data makes sense. And that's also as well as looking at it, like I said, through the video is basically if, for example, if we're trying to improve our goalkeeper expected save model or something, just to use an example, our data science team runs it back and say, hey, Carl, can you make sure that this actually makes sense for what's happening? They come out with an output. I'll use video and kind of use my coaching brain to kind of look at the video and be like, okay, yeah, that does make sense. Or, uh, no, I would probably try to work on this because if you're working with a goalkeeper coach, this is what they would probably say. So it's very complicated because pretty much every Monday I start off, I'm like, okay, what's going to happen this week? (laughs) It's very different. So. Well, that's all really helpful context by which we can now approach the the topic at hand. So when we were prepping for the podcast episode itself, you said you wanted us to focus on the general way to connect the dots between tactical analysis, either your own team and the opposition, and the deliverables with players and staff, which is how to share things which are actionable and relevant. So in the rest of the podcast, I, I just want us to focus on that really and talk a little bit about what you mean by tactical analysis in particular. So What are the things that you're looking for when you're looking to break down a game tactically? If you ask any coach this, they'll have their own kind of opinions on this. So I'm not going to say this is the right way to do it, but this is just how I do it. Usually I kind of look at, I've said prior is, you know, what's applicable for how the team style is. I have my own personal opinions on how I think the game should be played. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's what is actually going to have the most insight or how I should be looking at a game when I'm breaking it down for a coach. No coach and analyst is going to agree 100% of the time, but my job, and if I want to keep my job, is to make sure that it's actually something which the coach cares about. So when I'm looking at it, basically I look at it from the various phases of play. I always start with build-up just because you can get a lot of the kind of the intentions. You usually see a lot of teams which like to build up play and are a little bit more progressive in how they pass the ball. It also has some kind of say in how they actually defend, and that can kind of help you cut down some time. There are obviously some notable exceptions of teams like to build up and then obviously sit deep, but you'll usually find in the modern era of teams that like to build up and play through the thirds are probably going to be teams which play higher up the pitch and look to keep the ball as much as possible, which means pressing high. So I always look at it and break it down into various phases. Build up progression phase which is essentially in the middle and then finishing or final third and then as well high pressing mid block low block and set pieces are kind of different because they're kind of a separate side of the game so whenever i'm doing opposition analysis or our own kind of team analysis those are kind of the starting points i start from the attacking side of things just because it's honestly it's more fun to look at than when a team breaking down has the ball and then going from there and then once you once you kind of build out the collective framework of how a team likes to play, and I always focus on individuals which actually make that happen because obviously nothing happens in a vacuum. And if you can find ways to take out individual threats of players, that obviously makes the collective a lot less than it normally is. That's kind of a broad kind of way of doing it, but yeah. I want to delve into each of those areas that you've talked about in, in specific, but before we do that, actually, just anecdotally the work that you're doing at the moment with Bath City FC when you're analyzing oppositions do you find that there's much tactical diversity in the National League South or do you find that actually a lot of teams are building up and attempting to play and attack in the same sort of way? I think I've actually worn out the long ball button that I've (laughs) I've put on my coding window but in all seriousness there are teams which like to build out of the back and look to play a lot and they're actually the teams which are probably the stronger ones in the league you know it's that probably needs more studying But there are kind of tactical sort of variations, and there's obviously very different formations. A lot of teams now are playing a back three in the National League South and the lower leagues. I think Chris Wilder might have something to say. Thank you, Chris. But I think the importance as you get into the the lower leagues and where the, the tactical fluidity isn't as high, most of it's out of necessity. But I usually try to focus more on the individual kind of things and individual threats as the the less sophisticated the overall framework gets. Because more likely than not, if they're playing to those kind of stronger players in a team and you're able to take out those threats, they're going to be less effective. Kind of use an example, if you're looking at Manchester City, for example, if you take out Kevin De Bruyne and you you put all your focus on him, obviously they have a million other threats they can hurt you with. If you look at Dartford in our league, basically, if you take out one or two of their strong players, they're, they're not going to be nearly as effective. So the drop off in level, if you cut off individuals, is a lot more pronounced. And how much scope do you have, really, to be able to recommend the overall approach in that respect? Do you, do you get the the wherewithal to be able to say, this player is strong, we need to cut them out and focus our tactic around that, rather than necessarily saying, well, let's just ignore their players and, and do what it is that we're going to do well in possession? I've built up a, a good enough relationship with the manager now where he, and this this is partly due to the fact that, like I've I've mentioned, basically, is when I come in, I basically don't. My, essentially, a performance analyst is the support staff. If I came in and started making demands about how we should play, I just the coach would tell me to, to F off. So basically, making sure that you have that buy-in instantly, whether that's how you deliver the information or what you're actually delivering, you can get a lot more increased sort of say on things. So now when I kind of give an approach, for example, one of the things I recommended early on was prior to me joining Bath City, just to use a kind of an example here, I kind of had a look at things before I actually got to England, basically, of looking at how Bath City had to play it. If all the lower leagues, uh, kind of the, the league we're in, Bath were really high pressing. They played a 4-3-3. They liked to you know, compress the pitch in the final third. When I joined, the decision was made to basically play a back three, a 3-5-2. And then one of the center backs we recruited was very, very, he was basically the, the player who helped push up the line and drop off the line. He was so, sort of the center center back of that. The way he liked to play was he didn't like to press up high up the pitch. So essentially our whole press was being basically there was a defensive line and then there was the front players in the midfield were dropping really deep. So there's a lot of space. So our pressing was that nearly as effective. I didn't say we should get rid of this player, which is actually what happened. I basically said that we should try to go back to a 4-3-3, look to kind of press up the pitch and play higher. 
And that was one thing that I kind of built up. It was after, I want to say this was in October, November. And so I worked with the staff and through video, basically showing them examples of comparisons of previous seasons and as well, and as well, looking at the data just to see how that kind of manifested was one way I did. It. And that's one kind of example. It doesn't happen often, like even at the t- like the very best performance analysts on earth, the amount of times you could probably count on one hand where basically they have had a huge say in sort of the coaching side of things, just because, like I said, it's more of a support role. Yeah, that's really interesting. Right, let's move on to talk about the different phases of play. So you mentioned the attacking phase really in terms of build up through, I guess it's through the, the Salida moment. So the exit from, from the back and then a progressive moment and then uh, an attacking moment. So could you talk us through what you're looking at in particular for when you're analysing those phases of play? Basically with build up, kind of the first phase of things, the first thing I play I look at is the goalkeeper. If the goalkeeper is heavily involved, it's going to usually have some obviously a huge say on things. If they're if they're popping the ball and they're completely bypassing the third of most of the times, you can basically skip out on the on the build up phase because it has a lot of and say is their intentions in terms of how they actually build up. But if the goalkeeper is playing a lot of short times, I usually look to see what the next sort of pass on from that is. So the center backs, if they like to play centrally more. Or if they're more just kind of moving the ball side to side, playing to the fullbacks, and then the ball goes along there, just getting a lot of the intentions about how the buildup actually plays. So when I'm looking at video, when I'm looking at data, I'm basically looking at kind of the verticality about how they build up. If it's a lot of horizontal passes side to side, I look to look and say, okay, well, how can we disrupt this so they're actually being forced into areas where they're weak? And then as well, once you get into that kind of midfield area, looking how, about how the players who are looking to receive the ball. You see, you'll see a lot of times there's a lot of midfielders who are basically supplying themselves as an option, but they're basically just doing it just because that's what they're supposed to be doing. Like they're just sitting there. If you look at a pivot player, like I'll look at Calvin Phillips just because I'm on a, on a Leeds fans podcast. But basically <laughs> like a lot of times you'll see a midfielder who comes short to actually receive the ball and they're, and they're basically doing nothing with that. Like they're just easily coming straight to the ball and they're moving that. A lot of times Calvin Phillips might not actually show himself to be like the immediate option, but he'll become an option in the second phase, making himself marked and then making himself unmarked just because of the way other players are building. So yeah, the kind of the buildup is looking at the intentions either just from pure pass direction or in terms of what they're actually being able to do on that. The progression phase is a little bit muddy. I forget who actually made this meme, but it was essentially midfielder go burn. There's kind of the valley of meh in the middle. It's actually Alex Collins who's just done the podcast episode with us. Yeah, there we go. Exactly. That's that's, Yeah, thank you, Alex. The midfield kind of progression phase is the hardest because obviously that's where the most kind of congested area of the pitch is. So the the build-up phase and the kind of the midfield progression phase obviously kind of blend together a little bit more. But if they're looking to play through the midfield in build-up, they're obviously going to probably try to do that in the progression phase. Once you get to the attacking phase, obviously it's pretty simple. It's too easy because it's all framed by, literally framed by the penalty area. If the ball's going into the wide areas a lot, they're pumping in crosses. Obviously that's, you know, they like to play wide. If they like to stretch play, you know, going through the middle, et cetera. Because a lot of teams like to create width basically just for, to actually open up central areas. So I look at that a lot of times in the final phase, my kind of my first starting point is the wingers. Because if the wingers are tucked in and the fullbacks are getting high, more likely than not, they're going to look to play through the center. But a lot of times wingers will play open up to stretch the pitch in the middle. So just to kind of like put it in a bow, because I feel like I'm rambling at this one time, is essentially like looking at what the intentions of our, are of the team and how the players interact within that system is usually the attacking side of things. In terms of then translating that to both the coaching staff and then the players for the teams that you work with, how much information in terms of the the overall build-up phase do they need to know? Is are you when we're talking about actionable and relevant information? Are you simply taking having a conversation with the coaching staff and saying these are the areas where I think there's going to be the issues that we can influence, and then of these, this is the way that we're going to try and stymie it or stop it in some way and that's all it is that the players need to to know or is there a general meeting where you where you will talk about the whole overall game plan with the with the players with the players it's very tailored obviously just because of time constraints and a lot of times you know players aren't going to want to talk about the various intense kind of tactical concepts that coaches kind of have because obviously players don't have their coaching badges and they just want to know what actually immediately affects them in the pitch. So when I do kind of provide it with the with the coaching staff first, I do go into all the, the level of detail that I like to go. 
and then kind of working on with them, I kind of look at to see what would make sense for the kind of going forward in terms of either time constraints. And a lot of times it'll be a Tuesday game and you'll be a Saturday and you'll basically have very little time to actually train if there's a big difference there. So you tailor it that way. But then mostly working with the players, it's kind of hopefully each club that you work for will have terminology that you kind of have in terms of coaching staff. So it might, it might not be something that completely works for every club. If I told my winger to at when I was at UVA, I said, hey, to hit the seam, like a lot of clubs I work for would be like, have no idea what the seam is. But it, it works for them and it kind of fires kind of stuff in their head. They understand exactly what the seam, a seam run is, which is the run between the fullback and the center back. So a lot of times I look at it that way to kind of say, if we're looking at, for example, just like I use the buildup phase and I'm talking about how we're actually going to disrupt their buildup, I use a lot of those kind of things which are applicable to us, but into that kind of context of the game. So we obviously have a way of playing where we like to press up high, just to use another kind of example. I want our winger to, to cut off the side and we're going to force them onto their right because alongside how they build up through the fullbacks a lot, their weak-sided fullback is pretty weak. And that's basically where it ends. I'm not going to go into like, they might have this kind of rotation where they blah, blah, blah. It's just, you have a very limited time to actually work with them and work on. And if you had to explain the entire Spielverlagering article about them and about how they're actually supposed to play, you're not going to get as much buy-in. And this might sound like me basically saying you have to dumb it down to players. That's not really the case. It's just that in the kind of the, the heat of things, players are going to have to problem solve in the game themselves. You just want to give them enough that they're actually problem solving the right way. To kind of relate this back to actually the like the kind of the week to week performance analysis thing, there's kind of like this misconception around video analysis and analysis in general is that like you basically go to training and then on like a Friday before Saturday, you have like an hour long video meeting. I think Unai Emery kind of did a lot to kind of ruin this for video analysts everywhere. <laughs> What I like to do is I like to have basically prior to every training session, when you're working on something, one day you might be working on, you know, set pieces, one day you might be working on, you know, finishing, et cetera, having a five minute kind of video session of game specific clips about why you're actually doing this. So whether it be your own self, but like, okay, we had 14 1v1s on Saturday and we scored zero showing clips this is why we're doing finishing today. Or this is how they build up, and this is why we're going to be working on pressing this way. Just so they have little information hits throughout the week. And then that Friday going into the Saturday, they basically, it's everything, a kind of like a recap of everything they've already done. I don't know if you saw it, but this week, the Coach's Voices have put up a masterclass with Pep Landers, the assistant at Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And I love what you were saying there about each club having a sort of terminology and I would maybe even expand that to like even just a narrative right each club has a story that they tell about what they're trying to do on the field and I think that's a really helpful way for getting players to sort of roughly understand what it is they're trying to do on the field and then you can introduce specific tweaks to that story and say well you know this is what we're doing um, but in this game we have to maybe change this chapter and I actually found it really interesting listening to Pep Landers because he's always he's basically held up as being the, the sort of tactical paragon at Liverpool who's who's come up with all of these ideas and yet when you hear him speak a lot of the time what he's talking about is this sort of big picture story with a few tweaks here and there he's talking about the Barcelona game that Liverpool won to get through to the Champions League final and it was really fascinating hearing him talk in that way and um, I'm not sure if I've got a question here but I'd, I'd be interested to hear your your take on that sort of approach to to working with players I've had experience of it in terms of recruitment at UVA, which is very different, obviously, than the kind of professional level of recruitment. But it's very decentralized, apart from the kind of the MLS Academy structure in, in the US, where it's basically four through three Dutch model, play through the thirds, etc. Our coach there, who's still there, Coach Gelnevich, he'd been there for probably about since 1995. So like basically as long as I've been alive. And basically, <laughs> he had basically built up in an entire kind of terminology of things about he had a game model, he had terminology he used, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of the first week of preseason was basically when we were recruiting players who we obviously recruited A, because of their talent, but B, because they kind of fit how we wanted to play, was making sure they understood that terminology. And one way I did that actually was basically making game model videos of examples of this is what a seam run is, this is what a pressing jump is, et cetera. And I would show them video examples. And it also related to actually when we did it to, to data and metrics. So when I actually fed them kind of metrics that was linked to the video in either in a one v one session or in a team kind of collective session, there was kind of a, and I think I put it on Twitter recently, was basically like, this is what we're saying. Like, this is what the coach will say, like, for, just to kind of use it, make a seam run, 
this is what it allows us to do, basically. Like what what that actually does. Like it helps us win the ball higher for the pitch. And then this is what the metric with relation to that is. So you're basically able to kind of link the terminology to the actual outcome in terms of what the metric is. So when they look at a metric and they say, oh, expected goals, that basically means chance creation quality. And I also did that, like I said, with the tactical terminology and stuff. As we kind of built up a core group of players, UVA, even though we had a lot of players leave early for college, there was generally a core group of players who was there for four years. So by the end of year four, you have a very strong core of players who understand both what the kind of the data side of things is about how we wanted to play and as well the video analysis side of things as well, just so they can kind of parlay that wisdom as well to players who are younger. I've only been at Bath for a year now, so I can't really say how that's going to work, but we are working towards that kind of goal. Any club who's worth their salt will have that same kind of workflow. Let's talk a little bit then about the defensive approach. So when you're analyzing a defense, what is it that you're looking for? And again, you broke that into three, which is high press, mid block and low block. So when I'm looking at the defensive side of things about like how they'll press us, essentially, I usually start with how we our, our team is kind of doing things. So if we're a team that likes to split the thirds, I basically look at and relate that to, okay, well, they're a team which sits in a mid block. So that'll give our team sort of space to kind of build up and kind of do what we want in the final third. And it's basically essentially a flip of the offensive third. And kind of my main focal point, I start off rather than the goalkeeper this time, I usually start off with the center forward because what the center forward does is usually in most cases, he's kind of the one who kind of leads off that defensive organization. And he has a lot to say because he's usually when a center forward goes to press, that means it's usually a signal for the rest of the team to press. And if a center forward is kind of lackadaisical in terms of how he actually presses, I can basically highlight that and say, okay, well, they might look like a team who wants to press, but if we can kind of manipulate their center forward, who's either lazy or just not very good at getting pressing angles right, that can have a huge say in terms of how we're actually able to build up against them and how they press defensively. Mane, who's now playing as a center forward, basically for Liverpool, is it's unfortunate if you're looking at them, you're like, oh shit, well, this guy knows how to press because his pressing angles are always spot on. He always leads a press and everyone follows him. So the center forward actually in terms of how they press. And then also has some kind of say going into the progression phase of things because more likely than not the space that the center forward occupies when he actually goes out to press is the one that your pivot player or your defensive midfielder will kind of occupy so where that center forward tends to lead the press will be in the next action basically in your progression phase where you're able to find space in central areas so if he's looking off to cut off the pitch on one side essentially I usually look to that weak side and where we can actually move the ball in to kind of find space that way. Or if they press up high and there's a lot of gaps in the midfield, I basically say, okay, well, we can find space in the central areas. So the center forward is always my kind of lead point. And then rather than kind of looking at it, like I said, the progression phase is kind of, it's meh. There's just a lot of mess going on there. My second kind of look is how they react once the press has been broken. Because every team, no matter how good they are, they're going to get, players of quality that they're going to be able to break a press so once that first press is broken i basically look at okay well do they drop deeper or do they keep kind of pressing in a sort of sense there and you'll get a lot of kind of intentions there a lot of teams will look to high press initially and as soon as that happens okay it's okay we're gonna drop to a low block we're just gonna drop off and that has a lot of say for us in terms of our offensive organization because if we build up a lot of pressing and we're able to kind of move the ball in there, they instantly drop off. That has a huge say because obviously space is really compressed. So that'll have a big say for me in terms of, okay, well, if if we're just able to break them consistently and we're playing all the short passes, it's just going to have a huge say. So it's kind of like you see it a lot on goal kicks as well because if a team kind of shows their hand early and they press really high up and they're like, all right, we're going to press this team really high up from the buildup. And the first sign of pressure, they just kick it long. That basically ruins your press for the rest of the game rather than if you kind of sit off a little bit deeper and then you entice them to kind of play it out of the back. And that kind of has the same sort of say uh, going through defensively. So it's it's basically a flip of how I look at things from an attacking standpoint and looking at the intentions and then as well the individual side of things. Yeah, and you talked about dividing things up between the collective and the individual as well. So you mentioned before the opposition having players who creatively are important. So in terms of analyzing that aspect of an opposition's game is that just something that comes naturally as you're watching the tape and you're thinking oh this player is a pivot through which a lot of 
players going through or et cetera, et cetera. How does that aspect work for you? Yeah, because I start from the collective things, I usually see that when I have a kind of a, a database of clips about how they build up and then how they finish, how they press, et cetera, you'll basically notice trends about players who are standing out there. A lot of times a player will pop. Like if I sat down my mom and just said, hey, watch this clip of 2010 Barcelona, she'd be like, oh, that messy guy looks pretty good. But there's a, a lot of times you'll say, okay, they like to play through the pivot player a lot. And you'll say, okay, well, the pivot players, the reason they're playing through is because their pivot player is really dangerous. And that's why they're doing that. So you'll get a lot of the intentions of why they're playing and why they're doing things are a lot are kind of based on the individual side of things. And then as well, once you kind of get a gauge of, okay, well, they play through this guy a lot. I basically watch more individual clips to say, well, okay, is it something that we can actually focus on? Or is it just something that is just the way they play? So they're naturally their pivot player is going to get a lot of touches. As well, the kind of defensive side of things, like I, I kind of use the Van Dyke versus Ben Mee example a lot of times. You're looking at Ben Mee's data, you'll be like, holy crap, this guy's a really good center back. But it's just a natural consequence of how Burnley play that he's going to win the header a lot of times. So it's not really something that you need to focus on. So yeah, starting point is a collective and then kind of seeing how that kind of plays out from the individuals and finding the threats there and kind of assessing from there. Once you have that individual player, is it is it something that's relevant and it's something that's actually dangerous or is it just just a natural consequence of, of team style or context around that? And what about the defensive aspect there? Do you, will you look for individuals within defensive structures or is that is it simply the case that defending is more systemic, I suppose? The recent podcast that you had on here basically about how hard it is to work on defenders, basically. Defending is a lot of times systemic. So like a lot of times like, I, I might have a kind of a, a say on what I think is a, is a good center back, but you know, is he really good? Like, I defend. Like, if if you could find me a scout who is like a hundred percent confident every time about what makes good defenders, that person is going to be a, a billionaire. But the way I kind of look at it, if I'm looking at defenders who are able to target, is where chances are created. Just it's basically as simple as that. Like, if they're creating a lot of chances from the left-hand side, I usually look what's going on with the right back and then the right center back. And as well, kind of blending it with context, because a lot of times you'll see chance created because they play a high line. You'd be like, well, the center back is slower than molasses. So if we're able to kind of lean into that and play a lot of balls over top of them, you'll find threats that way. So in terms of taking all of this information you've gathered in pre-match work and then making it actionable and relevant, to use your phrase, for your team. What does that look like in the moments before the game? So we've, we've talked a little bit about how you'll talk to the, the staff and then and then break it down to the individuals, but what does that look like in particular? Usually on the Friday, if, if I was working kind of at a professional environment, Bath City, we aren't able to just because of the time constraints. Like I said, after we've kind of given little hits of information throughout the week, the Friday will be kind of the big recap, and that's usually where I throw set pieces in there, just because set pieces are honestly pretty boring and players <laughs> don't like to look at them throughout the week. So Friday is usually the longer sort of 30-minute meeting where the heavy blend, mostly a video. And then pre-match, usually, we usually have a pre-match meeting about three hours before kickoff with most environments I've been at, where a lot of times it's just kind of it's a little bit longer version of kind of the information hits we've given. So just reminders, everything, if you're trying to put in huge bits of information, like the day of a game, it's just going to get lost. It's kind of like cramming for an exam, like at 3am before you have an 8am exam, it's just, you're not going to be able to do much. So that kind of information is just like, just for reminder of, you know, these are reminders of how they like to build up and how we're going to press them. Make sure that you focus on this, looking at an individual player. And then the coach will obviously kind of have his say, and it'll be kind of the blend of, which is kind of the analysis processes, the, the qualitative kind of information stuff, and as well as like the kind of the context around the game. If it's like a, a relegation six-pointer, you're going to throw in a little bit of stuff of like, you know, make sure you're working hard, et cetera, et cetera. And even though I don't like to get involved in the kind of the rah-rah kind of Roy Keane kind of thing of things, that that is important. Players do relate to that in any way. You can kind of relate the information that you deliver Players are naturally competitive. Everyone's naturally competitive who's involved in sports in general. So any way you can kind of lean into that and get information in a way which kind of combines the two is important. Could we talk a little bit about the live process as well? Because you're obviously watching the games live and you're, you are logging data as the games are going on. You are in communication with the, the coaching staff during that, that time. So could you just talk us through what the game looks like from your point of view? The live kind of coding and information side of things is honestly the best part about working as a performance analyst, just because it's 
regardless of the game, like you're just sitting there 90 minutes, basically just completely absorbed by it. And it's probably where I'm able to do the most kind of like intensive sort of thinking about football tactics is actually when I'm doing it, because obviously there's a lot riding on the line live. So essentially what I'm doing is I basically, you either are filming it yourself with the computer or I'm lucky. I basically have a guy who's really good at filming matches for me who works alongside me. And I basically plug into his camera from a wide angle so I can watch it back later. And then I'm hooked up to sports code or like I said, whatever video analysis kind of software I have. So I have it the, the matchup on my screen. And then I also have kind of a, a bespoke tagging window that I've made myself, which relates to both a blend kind of our game model kind of specific things and as well clips which kind of allow me to create data on the spot so when i see something which is relevant like for example uh, a set piece i'll basically make sure i hit a hotkey on my computer and that instantly creates a clip of that with lead and lag time kind of included just so i'm not sitting there focused on manually hitting it every single time when i first started off doing live feedback it was basically just doing a lot of basic like shots set pieces stuff which is really you know very easy to tag as you get more advanced and you get kind of obviously more familiar with the team's game model and obviously just with the actual technical aspect of live coding you can get more advanced so now i do a lot of things where i'm able to you know i'm clipping off pretty much every single build out variation we have every single time that we break lines every single time that we make a seam run times that we've put in across on the left times we put across on the right times that we've had a shot times the goalkeepers have saved. So really, really advanced stuff. And all the while, while I'm clipping this, which is for obviously the halftime review and the post-game review, I basically have a, uh, a kind of a live feed hooked up on an iPad to the coaching staff. So anytime I say like, hey, look at this clip, I could send them a clip to the, the iPad pretty much live with a, I think it's about a four second delay. And the coach on, on the staff and me can kind of make decisions and I can kind of provide feedback about stuff. So if I'm noticing that our, you know, if we're looking to play in a mid block basically and we're playing, you know, a four, two, three, one, one of our pivot players is like getting pulled out a lot really easily by movement. I can basically say, Hey, look at this Tony or whatever his name is, is getting pulled out. And I can share a clip to that. So the coaching staff can basically tell him live on the bench. And that's kind of the leave, leave feedback of things. And they'll also, also ask me questions as well. Like, Hey, what's going on? Why is this happening? And I'll basically hopefully be able to kind of provide with that information. Halftime is basically a mad scramble because while nominally you have 15 minutes to actually provide feedback, about five of that is is actually spent with them kind of working with the medical staff. And then the other five is just kind of making sure they decompress. So you really only have about five minutes. Um, and, and as well, uh, you also actually have to actually get, physically get down to the changing room, the locker room, because... Um, more often than not, the gantry position is the completely opposite side of where you need it to be or where you're basically scrambling down ladders. There's one I've been to at Grimsby Town, basically, where you have to climb on the roof and go up a ladder with absolutely no protection at all. So if you fall off, you're basically dead. <laughs> so that's fun. But yeah, so that's basically the kind of live. And the halftime, I basically, I have a button. Everyone is different, basically. But I have a button where if I, it's a clip I know I want to show at halftime, I basically tag that as a halftime clip button. So I can go down with my computer and basically show the players, the coaching staff, and I can basically put it up on a big screen and show them clips that way. And that also goes to the data side of things. So I'm basically creating data that way. And I can look at it and be like, hey, guys, we've only won the ball four times in the opposition third after pressing it. Like that's basically like three times less than our average. So just push the lines a little bit higher and you'll get more wins that way, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, pretty much a blend the halftime feedback and just live general feedback just because of the constraints of actual live data a lot of times my role is just i i prefer video because during the flow of the game if you if you show a player a clip of them miscontrolling a pass that makes more sense than hey you miscontrol one pass and showing them like a, a bar graph or something i don't know so yeah that's pretty much the halftime and it's it's always a flurry of activity and then the second half you go back clip up to the computer again and do it again in terms of the impact that you think you can have in that sort of situation, are there any things you can point towards and say, look, we actually made a big difference there? There was one thing where, and kind of like where I was talking about how we changed team shape from that 3-5-2 to a 4-3-3. I think that a lot of times, like you're not going to have huge things where basically like you basically, you went from playing a 4-4-2 deep block to basically playing like prime Barcelona City, like you're never going to have that kind of say in a game. A lot of the tweaks that you do have have a huge impact because just generally the time constraints, it's just kind of hard to kind of make huge tactical changes. 
in that time. But I can think of one example, and I think a lot of times this happens is where basically um, there was a time where we were having issues with defending set pieces. I think they had about five corners, and about five of them actually they they were able to generate a shot off, and that was able because the way that we were defending in our zone was heavily front loaded onto the near post, and basically they were descending deliveries all the way to the back post. And basically, what I said was, if we just drop our line, just like four yards back a little bit more, we're able to defend those corners instantly. We actually scored a goal early in the second half, which make it 1-0. And basically the second half was just the barrage of them sending in crosses off corners because they generate a lot of them. I think they had about 10 corners in the second half. And we basically were able to defend them really easily just because we dropped the lines off. It's just a minor tweak like that, which if you had not been watching the game and like making clips of it, you might not have noticed it. But it had a huge say in being able to, to actually have an effect on the game. I've got a question here about how tactically literate do you expect your players to be? We could probably marry this up with a question from a listener, Emilio, who said you worked with Joe Bell, who's now at Bromba, who is now considered to be one of the best young playmakers in Nordic football. From the outside, it looks like his ability to constantly develop a tactical side of his game is a main strength. Is Bell a good example of a positive long-term effect of tactical analysis with players? So moving more towards now the actionable aspect of the topic at hand. Yeah, Joe, is when he first came in, He's New Zealand international. He was basically like, he was a really high caliber player when he came in. He was a, I think he was a captain of like the U17 New Zealand national team. So he had a very good, say he was at Wellington Phoenix Academy, et cetera, et cetera. So he had good coaching and kind of good tactical development when he first joined us. And I think at that kind of ages, he was with us for all four years. So 18 to only about 21 years old. I wouldn't say he actually developed hugely technically from that kind of standpoint. He was always a very good passer, always able to play really good passes on the ball. Positionally, he was all a lot of that. But I think the way we were able to kind of highlight it was just making sure he had a better understanding of where to position himself. So the tactical side of things to actually make sure that his technical ability kind of showed. He's physically one of the worst athletes I've I've worked with. Like I'm pretty sure that if you went outside and find anyone to like basically try to beat him in a sprint, you would be able to beat him in a sprint. He's really slow. Sorry, Joe, if you're listening to this, I love you, Joe, but um <laughs> just not a great athlete. But his brain and his ability to actually play passes was something that, and I think a lot of that was kind of his technical understanding made sure that he's actually able to get to the level where he is. Because if he was constantly out of position and he was basically like putting himself into bad areas and defensively and with, with the ball, he wouldn't be able to show as much as you know good as he is. If he played for a team which is constantly like a rebel kind of pressing team, I don't think it would work just because it's just physically not good enough. And a lot of times you have to cover a lot of distances in those kind of teams. So a lot of my work and obviously the coaching staff worked in terms of the tactical side of things, was just making sure that he knew where to position himself to actually be able to make sure that he could work on his highlighted strengths and, and kind of get away from his deficiencies. At UVA, we played like a four, we played a four, three, three, where basically his job was to basically make sure that he was either splitting the center backs. So they were able to push out wider and he would basically dictate as like kind of a deep line playmaker there, or he would basically push on one of the fullbacks and drop in between the center back and the fullback. So we were putting him into positions tactically where basically he was able to get on the ball a lot, but that he had cover around him and he was able to cover for other people without basically playing higher and having to track back a lot. So I think kind of the way we worked with him and kind of making sure that he understood the tactics and it kind of goes hand in hand with how we kind of built in the lingo and the kind of the terminology that we put in to, to kind of drip feed him tactical stuff was hugely important. And as well, obviously the way he working in um, top level clubs obviously had an effect too. And do you look forward to working with players who are particularly tactically smart in that respect do you have certain players who you will go maybe a little bit deeper than you will with other players who you just kind of think we need to give them the bare minimum there's a lot of players and it's basically a lot of it's player-led like if if i notice a player is picking up a, a lot of the tactical side of things really easily I'll kind of go to them individually and not really gauge their interest, but kind of get a, a little bit more into the individual side of things of, of the kind of the tactical framework just to make sure. And, you know, if there is, you know, a little bit of feedback, they're asking a lot of good inquisitive questions. That means, okay, when I sit down with them individually or when I provide them clips, like I said, I, I make sure every single player has access to all his clips, basically sitting down with them and kind of, you know, feeding their curiosity and kind of helping them build that kind of that tactical resume. And I think a lot of it also is kind of positional. 
working with attacking players, I found just over from the years, I found that they don't care as much about the tactical side of things. Like a winger who takes on a fullback a lot of the time, he's, he never really wants to know what his opposite fullback is going to be doing. Meanwhile, a center back, especially the goalkeeping side of things, they're the ones who care more about the kind of the tactical side and about how the kind of the opposition line up. So it's kind of a positional group thing, but as well, kind of the individual focus. I mean, I might be biased because I was a goalkeeper, but I have not met a goalkeeper who kind of sits there and just says, I don't care what the opposition do. I'm just going to save shots. Like they, they care deeply a lot about, about how the kind of the collective works with them. Well, Carl, I've taken up a lot of your time. Maybe if we could just summarize the topic that we've been talking about and you could give some advice to the people listening who are interested in going into performance analysis as to how they can actually operate in a way that is actionable and relevant to players. So, yeah, what what would your advice be to those performance analysts amongst us who are interested in, in the way that they can actually influence the way that their team is playing in the most effective ways? I think the biggest thing I've kind of had, and I've spoken about it, pretty extensively, if you follow me on social media, you'll basically know pretty much is making sure that you're tailoring your information to something that's relevant. Relevancy will also drive kind of actionable insights. So understanding who you're actually supplying that information for and how you're supplying that information will have a huge way in kind of getting you a role because there's plenty of people who could sit down there, watch a game and understand what went tactically. But if you're not actually able to translate that information, whether it's the metrics data side or the tactical kind of video side of things, you're not going to be able to actually make an impact with the coaching staff. Coaches nowadays, luckily I've not worked with the coach, knock on wood, I won't work on one in the future, who basically doesn't care about anything kind of insight and just kind of goes out and just rolls the ball out and literally and figuratively and basically says, all right, this is how we're going to play. But if you're able to kind of make sure you build that relationship to show what you're, you know, what you're talking about, and then, you know, how to actually relay that information, you'll get so much buy-in. And then that means that the coaching staff will implement it better on the coaching and on the pitch. Yeah. And one of the things you really talk about a lot on Twitter is workflow, just making your workflow as, as slick as possible, right? Yeah. And I, performance analysis, like if you're looking to, to, to basically have like a, a nine to five, you're in the wrong area. You're basically going to be working from eight till 10. Pretty much any time I watch a game now, it's very much like, oh, well, that was an interesting tactical nugget that I like to take away. So anything what you can do, which can kind of to automate, but not go on autopilot and basically like completely go monotone in terms of how you're delivering things, just cuts off on the actual time it actually takes to analyze something rather than actually working on ways to actually implement what you've actually analyzed. Well, Carl, it's been great chatting to you. Before we finish, I should just mention that next week we are talking to Lewis Ambrose about Borussia Dortmund and the tactics of an unequal league. So we've got that to look forward to. Carl, what is the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out? You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Carlin, C-A-R-L-O-N, Carpenter. I answer pretty much every message and I basically never log off for better or for worse. (laughs) So uh, if you want to send me a message, ask questions, reach out. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be on. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Ark Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week.